tonight we're talking about friendship, specifically the attitude of friendship. Psychologists define friendship as a relationship of mutual affection, but we will be going beyond conventional understanding of this concept. There's a quote from Anais Nin that I'd like to open with. It's, each friend represents a world in us, a world possibly not born until they arrive. And it is only by this meeting that a new world is born. I uh, had shared recently a comparison or analogy of friendship and use the five elements to try to explain or give some more insight into the different kinds of affections that we have with others. So I said that some friends are like the earth. You can build a life with them. So they're like your rock. And some friends are like water. They flow in and out of your life and they refresh you and they add beauty, but they come and they go. And then some friends are like fire. There's a lot of intensity, it may be brief, but they burn bright with wisdom or with passion. And then some friends are like the air. You don't see them, but they're always with you. And then lastly, some friend or friends are like space. They honor your existence by giving you total freedom. I've seen some spiritual definitions of friendship defined as one who gives total freedom. And that's the one that really resonates with me and what I have been practicing following the wisdom of my spiritual teacher. The day that I chose this topic, that morning I got a video message from my guru just like last time, or maybe it was two times ago, the video message was called Maintain the Attitude of Friendship No Matter What. <laughs> so I thought, okay, this we're good to go here. Many people will hear that analogy of the five elements in friendship, and they'll wonder which kind of friend they are or what kind of friends do I have in my life. I don't necessarily think we are one particular kind of friend. I think it pertains more to the kind of experiences that you'll have. Although, at one time or another, we may play the role of one of those five elements, but obviously we can't be a partner to every single person that we meet, to every single friend that we encounter. So we can't be all those things to all people. There's not enough time and there's not enough resources, especially cognitive resources, which we'll explore a little bit later on. There's also a Taoist parable from author Derek Lynn, who wrote a book called The Tao of Happiness, which I like. It's about three friends that are scholars, and they have made it a point to reconnect annually, once a year. On this particular gathering of the three friends, there's a sense that something is different. And it's because they're a lot older and now they're feeling the brevity of life. So the first scholar says to the other two friends, my friends, it's good to be with you all, but future is uncertain. Can anyone be sure that we would be able to meet again next year. Who knows, this may be the last time. The second scholar, he starts to laugh. He says, oh, my friend, I can't think that far into the future. I say to you both, who can be certain that there will be a tomorrow for us? So I'll just enjoy today with the two of you. Then they look to the third scholar, wondering how he feels about their gathering. He's very quiet and thoughtful, and then he says, 
well, my friends, I can't even look till tomorrow. Who can be certain that the next breath will come? Therefore, all I have is this breath with you. So he shortens it just to this moment. The point, I think, of the story is that when you think of the conventional definition of friendship, a relationship of mutual affection, we can easily get confused into thinking that a friendship has to be sustained over some period of time and requires a certain amount of reciprocity. But in the attitude of friendship, it's as the third scholar describes. It is a way of encountering the present moment with others or with yourself or with non-humans, animals, plants, trees, also the inanimate life. So that is the attitude of friendship. In this moment, how can I be a good friend? The tricky thing is that as soon as we try to sustain something, we get entangled with the past. I was having a conversation with my friend Lorna some time back, and I was saying something along the lines of, aren't all relationships attachments to the past? Then we had a, a nice dialogue about that, meaning something special happens, and then it immediately goes to the past. And my mind thinks that because that special experience happened in the past, it should be recreated or something like it should happen again and again and again. And if it can, that can be very nice. But there may be something else being presented in the present moment that requires your friendship. So let's look at, at some of the etymology of the word friend. Our English word friend comes from Old English and Proto-Germanic language. It might have been pronounced freund in the past. And it has this root, F-R-I. But in ancient times, it was actually P-R-I. So like preond. That P-R-I meant to love. And if you remove the R from friend or freund, you get fiond or fiend. Fiend means foe or enemy. So that root without the R, the F, I, meant to hate or to antagonize. So these two words were considered opposites, at least in that European linguistic etymology. I was reflecting on the letter R What's special about R? I turn to mathematics. In math, R represents the set of real numbers. So I thought that has some special relevance here because we live in a time where the depth of friendship doesn't matter so much as the number, on social media especially. And as we're gonna see when we look at this psychologically, it's not so possible cognitively to have deep relationships with as many people as we may claim to be friends with. And that doesn't mean we can't have the attitude of friendship. So R, real, is the difference linguistically between friend and foe. There needs to be something, something real about it. If you go to the other side of the world, like, um, Pali, Buddhist, and Sanskrit, Hindu, you have a couple words. And there's a connection to the root of love in Pali, which was metta, which is the word for loving kindness, or maitri, which is friendship and loving kindness. We translate that word to loving kindness because love itself is to too charged. Buddhist Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh said something like, the word love needs healing. And he would prefer to use love rather than loving kindness so that the word could be healed. 
but it's so intimately connected to friendship because in real friendship there's no expectation there's just joy in giving something when it arises but no demand for reciprocity and that's largely the definition of love in many of these eastern wisdom traditions this maitri loving kindness the root of that is mitra which means friend and maitri or metta in pali is one of four qualities of true love other teachers have said that friendship is the highest form of love because there's no expectation there's no demand on the other and you can think of the other relationships that we might think of as loving like a partnership there's plenty of expectation oftentimes in partnerships or marriages there is an expectation that there'll be a return in ROI a return on investment and when a person feels like their investment is not yielding the return people want to pull their out their investment and put it in a new stock but not in friendship i had an experience as a young man with one of my best friends we were in new york city and he told me he um just proposed to his girlfriend and she said yes my friend too cassie and he met in college when we were in school together we were roommates and became best friends so he asked me to be the best man and i said absolutely i would i would love to be your best man you're my best friend i'll be there for you man and then we celebrated but shortly after that i had recently met my spiritual guide maybe in that same year or the year before something like that and i had been trying to find a way to study in india but so far i'd been unsuccessful with different types of training i wanted to do then i got word that i could come to the monastery that i wanted to train at later that year until the following summer and my best friend's wedding was in april right in the middle of that training it was only going to be offered once no other chance and this was like my life stream at the time so i told my friend i said um i'm really sorry but i can't be there for you and it was very hard to tell him that and i was really nervous because i thought that meant i was a failure as his friend especially as his best friend but um i was surprised when he said that's no problem at all i would i would feel bad if you missed this opportunity he's like i know this is important to you and that's where you need to be i have no expectation that you know for you to skip that and be with me and i was so touched by that and we have remained best friends 20 plus years and even years later we've gone to other friends weddings together and there's never been even the slightest disappointment in me for not being there for him he's that kind of friend even though i felt like i was not the the good friend in that circumstance i realized that he didn't see it that way and that was an attitude that i aspired to live and my my guruji taught me that too when i was in india that the ultimate friendship is total freedom you think how much people try to control each other in this world i mean this is a huge problem right now so much hatred for each other because people won't behave the way that we want and it's unfortunate that people start to just dismiss people and shut people out of their life and i say it's unfortunate because surely people could have done that to me throughout my life i was not 
a ripe fruit from the beginning. I'm not even saying I'm ripe now. So there have been bitter moments in my development. And I'm glad my brother or my family or other people in my life didn't give up on me when I might have been difficult to deal with. So there's another word in Sanskrit that I think is relevant here for understanding friendship. The word is bandhu. Bandhu is another word for friend in yogic language. And this is a special word because it also can be used to apply to things that are tied together, like the toe of a boat. So it means two things, bond and bondage. This is where friendship gets tricky in spiritual life. When there's expectation, the friendship becomes a bondage. When there's attachment, the friendship becomes a bondage. When there is no expectation, when there's the pure love and total freedom, then the bondage is a bond, but it's not binding. It's not something that ties you down. And to achieve that, we have to practice detachment. Science has shown that friendship is essential for the psychological development of human beings. There was an interesting study done with the fight-flight instinct and our stress response to danger. Patients or subjects were put into an experiment by some researchers, a social psychologist, uh, Jim Cohn, he's the one who did this experiment. Subjects were administered some electric shocks and they would come to know when the shock is coming. But the experiment is done with a couple scenarios. One is where the spouse of the subject is holding their hand before the shock comes. Another one, a stranger is holding the hand of the subject before the shock comes. And, and the third one, no one's holding the hand. And what was found in the brain with the fMRI study was that the highest response or reactivity in the brain was when no one's holding the hand. And then there's less stress when a stranger's holding, and then there's the least stress when the spouse is holding the hand. So this falls in line with the understanding that we need friends, we need bonds, we need social connection for safety and security. This was much more true in the past Friendships are getting more and more strained in the present moment, but I do think that it's intelligent to ask if the role of friendship is actually the same. Social media, technology, obviously the present crisis has made connection very challenging. And many of us are suffering because of that, but I think that is because of the legacy of being social animals and requiring bonds to be able to protect ourselves and find food and build fire and, and so on. It's quite possible though that we don't actually need friends in the way that we used to. So there may be an opportunity here for us to evolve a little bit further. Now on the surface it's like loneliness is killing us and that's true. But I think for spiritually minded people they can start to understand the role of friendship and through self-enquiry and self-study, we might be able to learn how to be alone a little bit more and enjoy it and how to make friends with the present moment, with our life in the present moment. Whereas before we needed secure, stable, consistent people in our group. Now, those strong group ties are actually creating trouble in, the, in modern life. So those group ties are still pretty strong, but we're living in a world that's more and more globalized. And groups of people are going to, those groups are going to bump up to each other. And if there's not friends between the groups, 
then there's more potential for violence. And this is just because of legacy of, in our country, of oppression, racism, and segregation. It's especially challenging, even in present times, even if you know many people don't want it to be that way. There's still a lot to undo. Also, it's challenging in America because we have people from all parts of the world. Not every country on earth faces that, um, that potential for integrating cultures and ideas and, and ethnicities and histories and legacies. So it's, um, it's a totally unique experiment. It hasn't gone as well as it, it should. But hopefully through more understanding, we can make that possible or we can work towards making that dream a, a reality. But I've looked at other science that shows that it's very hard for different ethnicities to become friends, and this is a problem. I think something like 30% of Asian students and black students will report that they cannot name a single friend at school. Something like 12% of all children will not appear on a single list of friends from any other student. And I do think that problems with friendship, either in the family or in the school or in the community, accounts for so much psychological distress in adulthood. It's like so many people, and in my work in counseling over the decades, it seems like so much of the distress is people trying to survive childhood and adulthood. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but we can't redo the past. We can't redo our own past, like our personal life. So all I can do is help people learn how to heal in the present moment and how to be a friend to themselves and to everyone they meet and develop this attitude of friendship. I think it's not so helpful in spiritual growth to continue to ask, who is my friend? Where are my friends? How come I don't have more friends? Or how come I don't have good friends? Is this person a real friend? How can I know if this person's a real friend? I don't think any of that helps us feel better about ourselves. It's amazing, or I should say, painfully startling how hard people are on themselves because of their friend situation and how bad people feel about themselves if a friend doesn't show up in their life or if a friend leaves their life. So, I mean, in that sense, I talked about those five elements so people could understand that you can't fit every association neatly into one friend box. So those questions are not helpful for somebody to become truly self-reliant in spiritual life. But what is a worthwhile question is, am I a real friend? Not just am I a real friend in the conventional sense, like am I texting this person every day? That's not it. Am I a real friend in this moment? Like in the story of the three scholars. Or am I elsewhere? Or am I distracted? Or am I missing the opportunity to be kind? And that doesn't just apply to human beings. That applies to the earth, that applies to the animals, that applies to inanimate life as well. There was also a study done of wedding photos. And the researchers thought it's a pretty good assessment of people's close friends by looking at the photo of the wedding party, because that's like the most uh, exclusive club of friends, like five to 10 people. And they were looking to see how often other race, races appear in the wedding party of the bride or the groom. It doesn't happen very often that people of color end up in white people's wedding party 
but it does happen more than you would think that white people would end up in people of color's wedding party. It's just another example of how we have to do more to make this world not such a divided place. And I'd like to give a few tips also if you're a parent trying to navigate this landscape. I get asked a lot too, like how to help my child make friends. I think it's important for children to understand this attitude of friendship. That what's most important throughout life is that you learn how to be a friend. That you learn how to care about others, that you learn how to be interested in other people. There's an intersection with this ancient Eastern wisdom with the modern self-help movement and specifically the, the book that many think started it all, which was Dale Carnegie's How to Make Friends and Influence People. And he said, you can make more friends in two months by being interested in others than you can in two years trying to get other people interested in you. But you can't fake this. You, you have to genuinely be concerned with the well-being of others. Another obstacle to this is that we tend to gravitate towards people who think like us and look like us and behave like us. And so that puts us into a bubble and into an echo chamber. The brains of friends have even been studied when being analyzed with functional magnetic resonance imaging. They respond similarly to music, to politics, to humor. In this 21st century, I think, people will really need to reach out, to put themselves into situations where they're going beyond their echo chamber. For children, this can be helping children learn how to volunteer, how to do community service. I think still sports and music are a way to find deeper connection and wider connection. As a musician, I've seen that Bands were way ahead of civil rights. Miles Davis's bands in the 50s and 60s had musicians from all over the world and all different kinds of ethnicities here in the United States. But he had John McLaughlin from Britain. John McLaughlin was one of the great influences on my guitar life. And he was instrumental in the fusion movement of the 60s and 70s. And he founded a band called Mahavishnu Orchestra, which had members from all over the world. And from there, he went to India and he started to study Indian classical music and started a band called Shakti, all Indian musicians and himself. At the time, people hardly even knew about some of these cultures. But the musicians were already having no problem forming deep bonds, musical and creative bonds. The same is true, can be true in sports. You're in a situation where you're working on a common goal and people who are very different from you may be the ones having your back or saving your butt in, in a crisis in a game. And it's hard to think of them as just someone who's other than your group. Sports and music, I think, still have the potential to really connect us to a wider group of friends. And I also think it's important for parents to model good friendship to their children and to actually show interest in their children so that they can see what, what it's like to be emotionally intelligent, to take in the perspective of others. Because so much of friendship involves honesty, openness, trust, altruism, sympathy. In this modern world, when everything's happening superficially through technology, I think a lot of young people are missing out on that emotional intelligence component. Parents can do their children a great service by being interested, by making time for that. Gone are the days when we played outside all day with all the kids all over the place. In my case, my parents had to beg me to come back late at night every day. You know, especially in the summer, it would be building tree forts with all the kids on the block, 
playing sports in the street, playing flashlight tag at night or kick the can or whatever. And my mom would have to come out of the house ringing a bell or something, trying to get us to come back. That, but that's gone, isn't it? So for better or worse, we have to accept that the world is different now and we have to find new strategies for building connection. But with the understanding that we can grow spiritually and we don't have to be limited to five friends and demand that they do everything for us in our life, this is a chance where we can really stretch our wings and fly. To that end though, there is a principle that's relevant here. It's called Dunbar's Principle. There was a evolutionary psychologist, Robin Dunbar. In the 90s, he started investigating what is the cognitive limit of friendship. He was studying primates and he thought there was a relationship between the size of the primate brain and the um, amount of members of the group, amount of friends. And there was. So he thought then maybe the size of human brains can predict the limit of friendships we could have. So he measured the cortical mass of the human brain and he used the same mathematics to come up with the number that works for humans. And it was the famous number, now Dunbar's number, 150. 150 is the cognitive limit of how many friends we can have. Now, this is interesting. It's not that that's how many people we could ever become a friend with. His definition is this, and it's really good. This is the number of people whom if we saw in a restaurant or bar randomly, we would not be embarrassed to just join them. Think about that for a moment. Because we know, we may know so many people in our life and we may say we're friends with so many people or I may have countless friends on different platforms or whatever. But that doesn't mean that if I encountered all these different people in a restaurant that I would just sit with them. Now, of course, if I see my buddy B in a bar, I'm gonna sit with him, right? And Dunbar saying up to 150. There's a little range around it, maybe 200, maybe down to 50. So if you're a person on social media, like Facebook, and you have 150 or less friends, do not feel bad about yourself. That's probably an indication that you have your real friends on your list there of connections. Now, that is the limit of how many people we have brain resources to actually have a deep association with. It doesn't mean that we can't have the attitude of friendship with everyone we meet or way more people beyond that. But it speaks to something about our depression and our social anxiety and our loneliness because so much of social media is an illusion. And I think this is worth you know, teaching young people that, that all of the connections that people have, all of the, the followings and everything, that's not friendship. That's just marketing and branding and tools of business. It's not the same thing. This 150 is also interesting because in 2007, the average wedding size was 153. You probably noticed that, like when you go to full-size weddings, it's not a thousand people. Full-size weddings often not 10 people. If it's 10 people, it's like we're having a very intimate wedding or, or a very small wedding, or we're just eloping with a few people. But the average wedding in America was 153 in 2007, and it's gone down since then. It's, I think, like 136 last year. And so there's some truth to Dunbar's number. He also said 1,500 is the number of friends whose faces we would recognize, whose faces we could put a name to if we encountered them in public. This has been very challenging for me throughout my life because as soon as I could, I started touring and traveling and meeting people everywhere in every city of America. I, I think to the best of my ability, I've tried to stretch that number because I've made connections with thousands of people all over the world. 
but it gets me into trouble when I can't remember because I've met so many people. And it's hard to explain that like my experience traveling this globe hasn't been the same as other people. I, I have a hard time remembering where I did certain things, where certain concerts happened. Because when you're in a hundred cities a year for several years, it's too much to keep track of, to keep organized in your memory. But that's also inspired me to make the podcast, the Kind Mind Podcast, because I know that I'm going to fall short with all the individual relationships, the individual connections. I'm going to forget names. My brain is going to have its limits like every other brain, and as I get older, the memory will not always be as sharp. So I tried to build these resources, and I want to give back to every connection, and I can't always do so in person, but it's my way of being there. So that's Dunbar's principle. When I was 12 years old, my family moved to a different state. And up until that point, that was the longest we had lived in one place, four or five years. So I felt like I had friends for the first time. And then, you know, at, at that time when there's no internet and cell phones and all that, that's pretty much it. You know, when you move hours away, you may see those people a few more times trying to revisit, but it's very difficult. Although I had one friend from Indiana from childhood that uh, I parted with when I was 12, Zach, and we didn't see each other again for 20 years or so. But we got in touch with each other when my band was playing in Washington, D.C., where he lived at the time. I think I told the story before, but we got together, we went out to eat, and it was as if no time had passed. It was like two days had passed, not 20 years. That was a real friendship. And he, he said to me, I still think of you as one of my best and closest friends. I think when you have this genuine sense of blessing the people in your life with freedom, I'm not ever going to try to control you. To know that you're on your path and doing well and being happy is my own happiness. Paramahamsa Yogananda, the great Indian yogi and mystic who came to the United States in 1920, said something like, there's a magnet in your heart that will attract true friends. That magnet is unselfishness, thinking of others first. When you learn to live for others, they will live for you. And, there, and he went on to say, there's so much happiness in being unselfish. It's the greatest happiness. The last thing I'd like to, to share before we open it up for questions is the, the little bit of exposure that I've had to Native American spirituality includes this philosophy of friendship and relation with the earth. There's an expression in the Lakota tradition, I won't try to pronounce it, but it means loosely all my relations. You may have heard that. In the Hopi tradition, there's a word, Hakomi. Hakomi is translated to, how do you stand in relation to these many realms? That's its loose translation. Its literal translation is, who are you? I think this is really beautiful in Hopi tradition and Native American traditions, that the question the essential question of spiritual life, of Eastern mysticism, of even Western contemplative traditions, even in Christianity, to be still and to know what's going on within. That this question, who am I, is synonymous with friendship. Because if there's a divine spark in all of us, that spark is the same, right? Even if all of the outer coverings are different and creates so much contention, when we forget that there's this spark in everything, that everything is interconnected, how can we hate? 
So if you ask yourself that question, who am I? How do I stand in relation to all these many realms? It could be other dimensions, but the realms of society, country, family. How do I show up in all these realms? And we get out of this the ring of connection. You could think of a, the social atom. Inside is me. Then I have my inner circle of friends around that. And outside of that, I have extended family and friends. And then outside of that, acquaintances and coworkers. And then outside of that, all other life. And our attitude towards all of those rings can be the same. It can be one of true friendship. I have friendship with my mother and father and my brother and my band and the tiger and this so-called enemy over here, but they're in different rings. The rings just represent what you can safely do around those people. It doesn't mean that the friendship within has to be extinguished. So the tiger lives way out there in the jungle. I know that if I get close to the tiger, it could get dangerous. But I don't have to hate the tiger because of that. If the tiger's in its ring and I'm in my ring, then I can maintain that bond of love. Now, how do people move between these rings? Like the five elements I was saying, the water flowing in and out or fire. We move closer to the heart of each other through love, safety, respect, trust, kindness, understanding. And we have to create opportunities to go into the rings around us and to let, allow people to come closer to us. When people have been wounded, they build these rings into walls and it doesn't matter that somebody has shown up who could be trusted, who is kind, who is respectful. We don't let them in. So all my relations, there's a story that illustrates this, what I'm talking about here, and I may have told it before, but it's about the monkey and the crocodile. A monkey and a crocodile become good friends. The monkey lives in a mango tree along the bank of the river. And every day the crocodile comes and engages in conversation with the monkey, and the monkey offers mangoes from the tree. And the crocodile loves the mangoes. And sometimes the crocodile takes extra mangoes from his monkey friend and brings them home to his wife, Mrs. Crocodile. One day, he's talking with his wife about how delicious the mangoes are. And she's asking, where do you get these wonderful mangoes? The crocodile replies, I get them from my friend, the monkey. He lives in the mango tree. So she says, well, then he must be eating mangoes all day. If you think of how sweet these mangoes are, imagine how sweet the monkey's heart is. You see, the crocodiles are carnivores. Then she demands that her husband bring the heart of that monkey back for them to eat. And he says, I can't do that. This is my friend. I can't betray my friend. She retorts, so you're going to betray your wife? And then the crocodile knows he has to do right by his spouse. So sadly, he makes his way back to his friend and has to come up with a strategy for getting the monkey down from the tree so that he can um, bring him back to his lair. So he tells his friend, hey, all this time, you've been a good friend to me. You've been feeding me and my family by giving us mangoes from your mango tree. We would like to reciprocate and have you for dinner. <laughs> so please come on down. You can climb onto my back and I'll escort you to our home and you'll be our guest. The monkey doesn't feel too good about that idea. He feels a little nervous, but he trusts the crocodile. He thinks, we've become friends, and I've gotten to know him, so it should be all right. So he makes his way down, hops onto the back of the crocodile, and the crocodile slowly wades out into the middle of the river 
and then he knows when he's out far enough that he has them. And he feels like it's best that he come clean now that the monkey can't escape. So he says, hey, my friend, I'm sorry to tell you that my real plan is to bring you home so that we can eat your heart. My wife wants to know how sweet your heart is. And the monkey says, well, why didn't you just ask me? I would have gladly given you my heart, but I don't have it with me. I keep it in the tree. <laughs> why don't you take me back? I'll run up and I'll just give you the heart and then we can stay friends. The crocodile, which has smaller reptilian brain, <laughs> is so happy to hear that. He turns around and he's like, this is a great plan because I didn't want to hurt you. So he goes back to the bank, monkey hops off, runs up the tree and sighs with relief. But the crocodile's waiting, he's like, come on, wh where, where's the heart? monkey's like, you fool, nobody keeps their heart in a tree. <laughs> but I had to get away from you because you're not trustworthy. I can't trust you. And then the crocodile says, so does this mean that we can't be friends anymore and that you won't be giving us any mangoes anymore? And the monkey says, no, this just means I won't be coming down to where you are. And he grabs a mango and he tosses the crocodile a mango because that is the right boundary. That's what boundaries are in psychology, best of all. So this, all my relations is about seeing the good and all. And uh, my brother once shared a, a really beautiful Rumi quote that speaks to these times where it's so difficult for some people to foster the connections of friendship. But this Rumi quote is, like a sculptor, if necessary, carve a friend out of stone. Realize your inner sight is blind and try to see a treasure in everyone. So if you're religious, you try to see God in all or Christ in all. If you are have a more earth-based spirituality, you see everything as interconnected if you believe in the universe, you feel as though uh, the universe is operating in every particle and that there's unity among all. And you can approach all with the attitude of divine friendship. And Gibran said in his book, The Prophet, who is your friend that you seek with hours to kill? Seek your friend with hours to live. This means don't go through life thinking, I need friends to solve my emptiness, to solve my loneliness. Fill up your cup with meditation, with self-study, with self-inquiry, with spiritual practice, with devotion for life, with stewardship for the earth. And when your cup runneth over in the abundance, like we've talked about, Give, 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 share, and be a good friend to all. Anything anyone would like to share or ask, you may do so. Hey, Todd. Yes. Can you, can you talk a little bit about boundaries a little bit more? Yeah. Boundaries are the codes to be physically and emotionally intimate. Okay, so whether there's intimacy or not, that does not have to determine whether or not we can have the attitude of friendship, right? Like whether I can be close to somebody or not, that doesn't have to stop me from offering them freedom and uh, well wishes and so on but to get more intimate people need the codes of trust safety respect and ultimately love we don't need a whole bunch of people in our inner circle i said 
Dunbar's principle is we can only cognitively hold 150 friends. We can only put names to faces of about 1,500 people. Now, this doesn't mean it's always going to be the same. Like I said with the water, these people are moving in and out. The core five now, whoever those are, family, few friends, maybe a different group of three to five people in the inner circle next year. But the boundaries are the rules for intimacy. Okay, now an important thing to understand about boundaries is that when somebody betrays the trust, the safety, the love or respect, we don't need to redraw or reimagine boundaries. We don't need to turn boundaries into walls. So what typically happens for a lot of people, if they experience a trauma or a betrayal or an abandonment or a shaming, they may either build a wall around ev everyone, maybe between them and everyone, so nobody can get in. Nobody can be intimate, I mean. Like, I can't get close to people because I don't trust anyone. And that's a problem because we miss out on real connection and cooperation with others. The alternative might be that a person has no boundaries. And in this way, a person can rationalize being hurt. Well, if my door isn't locked, nobody will need to break in. So the key to healing from betrayals is to understand what healthy boundaries are and to try to sustain them even when boundaries are violated. What has to happen when somebody in an inner circle betrays us, they go to an outer circle and everyone else stays the same. So like if somebody in my family betrays my confidence, they go to an outer circle, not by me declaring I ban thee from my inner life. No, you just simply don't share the intimacy that you did before. In this way, we don't have to go around breaking up with people all the time. I mean, it's a little different with romantic relationships. There needs to be a little bit more clarity in the exchange. But with friends in life, it's just simply when there's love, trust, respect, and so on, I can share more of myself and they can share more with me. And when, when those qualities aren't there, then there's a little bit more love and space. I hope that gives a little more perspective. Thank you. This pandemic and quarantining has been prime self-reflection time. And I've been realizing what a rotten friend I've been. Well, I, I realize that too sometimes, but it wouldn't be that hard on yourself. Like I said, it's, it's impossible to show up in the way that we would love to for everyone that, that we meet. But yeah, in this time of self-reflection, really start to learn the art of filling up your own cup. Really learn how to love being alone. Being alone ought to be beautiful. And because it's so beautiful, you can have beautiful encounters with others because there's no desperation in them. You're not seeking out a solution. You're not trying to take. You're trying to give. And in the giving, you'll find some of your greatest joy. And without the expectations, you won't feel the same kind of social anxiety. What would be your recommendations for bringing loving kindness and friendship forward as we approach elections? Obviously, tensions are super high in this election cycle. The sad thing is that when people think differently politically, that we completely close off to one another. And you see online like people just saying, well, you're stupid if you think that, or you're an idiot. I guess what I would, what I would emphasize here, because there's no simple solution to the challenges on the societal level. But what I would say is that we can communicate without the judgment. We can talk about the issues without calling people names without resorting to attacking and blaming. And we can step away when we need to take care of our own emotions. But again, if you take to the art of meditation and self-inquiry, 
then you will realize you don't need to be understood. I don't need you to understand me, to care about you. Now, it's nice. It's nice when we can be friends like that. But I don't need it. I don't need to be understood to survive. And if I can remember that, then I don't need to judge. And maybe I will have the patience to understand why people think and believe what they do. All people can ever do is follow their program. The program means their genetic code and their environmental code. And if I was having their exact brain and upbringing and environmental downloads, I would be thinking like them, you know? It's a certain kind of awakening to realize, hey, it's a pretty unique thing to be a human being, to be born in whatever privilege one is born into. I mean, just being born a human being is a privilege compared to the suffering of so many other life forms. But it doesn't take too much abstract thought to realize it could have been a lot of different ways. And we can listen to people, we can try to understand why they think and believe what they, what they do. And if you can get past that just like surface difference, you might be able to get down to something more fundamental where there is still connection. Like all the waves are up on the surface of the ocean. The deeper you dive, the more stillness, the more oneness there is. Those who don't agree with us, how interested are we in understanding what has shaped that? We just know we don't like what people think and what they do and what they believe. But I don't think just hating that will ever solve our friendship issues as a society, as a civilization. Thank you for your question. Learning to be alone is difficult for me at times. I have the tendency to grab my phone to fill the void. Any tips? It's a good question. And uh, Colin had sent me something today about a study that I, I, I talked about in a previous podcast where people are put alone in a room and for up to 15 minutes and their only option is to sit still or press a button that'll give them an electric shock. And 65% or so of men shock themselves and 25% of women do. But it does speak to how hard it is to just be still with ourselves. So to practice being alone, plan for small units of time on your own. Plan them well. Don't find yourself just randomly alone with nothing to do, being idle. But give yourself the gift of aloneness, like taking yourself on a date as a friend. How would you befriend yourself? Like, what, what do you want to do for a friend? You know? So you make smaller units of time a gift to yourself so that you learn how special they are and you come to want more of it. It's just like lifting weights. You can't start out with a lot of weight. You start at an appropriate weight and you can do more and more and more from there. The same works with solitude. Solitude is different from loneliness. And grow it. Grow it so much that you feel like you love your own company. And there will be a totally different energy when you're with others when you love your own company. Then that's what makes the heart a magnet. Love chatting with you, sharing. Thank you for your thoughts and questions. Remember the earth the base and you can feel gratitude for the friendship that you've been able to lean on at times in your life close relations that you've been able to build the future upon remember the element of water appreciating the nourishing effect of water we can be grateful for the friends that have flowed into our life do your best not to be sad when friends depart. Like Dr. Seuss said, don't cry because they're gone, smile because it happened. Remember the element of fire. Feel grateful for the friends who have shown up to teach you. It could be human friends, it could be books, it could be the birds the trees, anything that's brought illumination. 
And we can be grateful for the intense relationships that we've had. Intense because of love or passion. Remember the element of the air. We have so many people who have cared for us, not just people, but nature has cared for us too. We don't always see it, but it's there. Remember the element of space. Everything happens within space. So it's synonymous with freedom. The true friend of life, of the universe, doesn't try to control. 